Church of God, this is the word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the, crea- the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1, the passage that Don just read, and let's continue our series, Holy and Holy. You know, last week we looked at this epic scripture. I can't think of a better word for Romans 1, 16 through 17 than epic. It's one of the most impactful statements made in the Bible, made in human history. Romans 1, 16 and 17 launched the Protestant Reformation. It's, it's that important as a text for us as a church and for us as, you might say, Reformed Protestants in the tradition of Martin Luther and others. And I, I hope after last week you can say, without reservation, like Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Can you say that now, church? Do you believe it? But there's an objection to that statement. There's an objection to the gospel of salvation by faith. And the objection goes like this. It goes like this. Why do we need a savior? Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need a bloody Jesus dying on the cross for our sins? Isn't that a bit excessive? Isn't that a bit gruesome to believe that someone's death by crucifixion is the source of our salvation? And it's almost like Paul anticipates that objection. Maybe he's heard it before. Because what follows Romans 1, 16 through 17 is this devastating argument against anyone and everyone who thinks that there might just be some other way to be saved other than the gospel. The great climax of Paul's argument in Romans 1 through 3 is Romans 3, 23, when Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when Paul says all, Everybody, it doesn't matter if you're from the Congo or if you're from Chicago. It doesn't matter if you're from Darfur or if you're from Decatur. It doesn't matter if you're from Bethlehem, Israel or Bethany, Illinois. Anyone and everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned, every Jew, every Gentile. So we're in a tough place. We need a savior. And before Paul deals with the Jews and their culpability before a righteous God, that's Romans 2 and following, Paul deals with us. Paul deals with the barbarians. Paul deals with the Gentiles and how we need a righteousness 
through faith. So here's, here's the question I want to answer this morning for your church. Here's your outline. You can write this down in your notes. Why do we need the righteousness of God by faith? Why do we need Romans 1, 16 and 17? Why do we need salvation by faith? Here's why. I'll give you four answers to that question. The first one is because we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. We suppress the truth. Paul says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And to that you might say, whoa, 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 Pastor Tony, what's going on here? The tone of this letter just changed drastically. I mean, Paul, first of all, he was all nicey-nicey with the Romans, greeting them, saying hello to them, and then he gives this epic statement about the gospel. And now, all of a sudden, he transitions and starts talking about God's wrath. I don't like God's wrath. I don't want to talk about that, Pastor Tony. Well, I don't like talking about God's wrath either, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And Paul is a faithful representative of the, of the Lord. He's, he's got to be honest be, before the Roman church. There is this thing called wrath. And if you don't take the righteousness of God by faith, then here's the other option. The wrath of God. I, I don't like talking about the wrath of God either, but I wouldn't be a faithful representative of Jesus Christ as your pastor if I didn't tell you that, that this is a real thing. That God's wrath is a real thing that we should be fearful of. And it's either righteousness or it's wrath. The title of this message is Righteousness or Wrath. Take your pick. Righteousness or Wrath. Those are your options. There's no third option. And even the way Paul talks about this here, this, uh, this revealing of God's wrath is similar to the way he talks about God's righteousness. In verse 17, Paul says this. You can read this in your Bibles. He says, the righteousness of God is revealed. Apocalypto. Remember that fun word from last week? It's revealed, apocalypto, from faith to faith. In verse 18, Paul says, the wrath of God is apocalypto. It's revealed. It's revealed from heaven. God's righteousness is revealed. God's wrath is revealed. These are the two inescapable parts of God's reality, God's character. And, you, and, and what's Paul saying here, essentially? He's saying, take your pick, church in Rome. What do you want? Do you want righteousness by faith or wrath? Take your pick, harvest decatur. What do you want? Do you, you know, there are only two options in the buffet line of life. You can have righteousness or you can have wrath. God is not a short order cook whipping you something up on your own that you want. These are the options, righteousness or wrath. What's it going to be? And to that you might say, and here's the objection in our day. Let me just deal with it. People say, well, that's not fair. That's unfair. Why, why do we get wrath? Here's why. Because we suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. There are two words that Paul uses in verse 18 to describe our sinfulness. He uses the word ungodliness. Everybody see that in your Bibles, verse 18? He uses that word, and then he also uses the word unrighteousness. So we have ungodliness. This is the Greek word, asabia. And it refers to religious sins, like those mentioned in the first four of the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me, no graven images, don't use the Lord's name in vain, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Anybody ever broken one of those four commandments? Anybody now? Use the Lord. Oh, man, lightning's about to strike here. Anybody ever use the Lord's name in vain? Anybody ever put something above God in the place of God? 
I have. I'm, I'm guilty of a sabia, of this unrighteousness. But then there's another word that Paul uses here too. It's, he uses this word unrighteousness. So there's ungodliness. So that would re- refer to these you know, sins, religious sins against the Lord. Then there's this other word unrighteousness, adikia. You know, the Greek word dikaios means righteous. Like in verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. But this is not dikaios. This is adakia. This is what's called the alpha privative in in Greek. It's the opposite of righteousness. It's the opposite of righteousness. It's unrighteousness. And the great theologian Charles Hodge, he, he talks about this, uh, this unrighteousness as the moral sins against humanity that are found in the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments. Y'all know these, right? Honor your father, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet. Anybody ever broken one of those commandments? Anybody ever stolen something small, even as small as a pencil? Anybody ever covet some other person's life, some other person's house, some other person's job, some other person's thyroid (laughs) that lets them keep off weight better than you do? I have. I'm guilty of this. We are all sinners. We are all full of unrighteousness. We are all full of ungodliness before a righteous God. You might say, boy, oh boy, Pastor Tony, this is a great sermon. Glad I came to church for this. We're not even done with chapter 18, and we're all guilty before a righteous God. Paul, in chapter 1, he's going to list about 50 more sins. And we all stand guilty before the righteous God of the universe. And Paul says that part of humanity's sin involves suppressing the truth by their unrighteousness. We suppress the truth by our adakia. How does that work? Here's how that works. We say, oh, you know, adultery is not that big a deal. You know, everybody's got a little something, something on the side beside their marriage. You know, stealing, it's not really that big a deal. Steal cable from somebody else. Who cares? Lying, it's not that big a deal. You cheat on your taxes. Everybody cheats on their taxes. What's the big deal? And we suppress. It's like we push, push down the truth. We justify our actions. We say, you know, it's not that big a deal if you hate somebody in your heart. It's not that big a deal if you lust after somebody who's not your spouse. Oh, really? That's not a big deal. Jesus called that kind of hate murder. Jesus called that kind of lust adultery and we stand condemned before a righteous God and our righteous holy God is compelled to pour out his wrath on our unrighteousness and that's why we need a savior right and that's why we need Jesus it gets worse write this down as number two why do we need the righteousness of God by faith we suppress the truth and our unrighteousness also we snub the creator We snub the creator. Paul says in verse 14, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Who's the them in that verse? Have y'all been working on your your pronouns now, trying trying to figure that out as you're reading the Bible? Who's the them in verse 19? It's the unrighteous and ungodly men in verse 18, 18, a.k.a. the Gentiles, a.k.a. us. So let's read that in mind here. 
Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to Gentiles, is plain to unrighteous and ungodly men, because God has shown it to them. In other words, Paul is saying that everyone knows that there is a God. It's obvious, it's clear as can be through creation. Everyone knows that there is a God, and anyone who ignores that or rejects that is suppressing the truth and snubbing the creator of the universe. You have to work at ignoring God. You have to work at denying God. The obvious reality around us is that there's a creator, and it's not us. R. Ken Hughes says it this way. You can read this on the screen. It says, and I agree with him. He says, it takes a concerted act of the will to deny that a vastly powerful God made and sustains the creation. You gotta, you gotta will that. You gotta work really hard to believe that, that there's no God. Believe in some kind of atheism that gets promoted in so many sectors of our world. You have to work hard at it. The, the founder of modern astronomy, Johannes Kepler, great man of science. He said this, he said, the undevout astronomer is mad. Somebody who looks out on the stars, looks out on the planet, sees all these amazing things, said there's no God. That person is nuts to look out and see that. And I'm not even sure Johannes Kepler had a word like atheism to use. If he, if he had, he probably would have said something like that. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God in the sky above, proclaims his handiwork. You look at the stars, you see that there's got to be a God. Day to day pours out speech, says Psalm 19. And night to night reveals knowledge. David says in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. David calls the atheist a fool. Kepler calls the atheist nuts. Paul basically calls the atheist a liar in Romans 1. There's no way that anyone can deny the existence of God in this world. And by the way, that, that, that word atheist, that word that's so common in our day, that word, that word didn't even exist in the English language until Queen Elizabeth. That didn't even exist until, until her reign. The idea that there was no God or belief that there was no God was, was unheard of until that time. It would have been considered asinine to believe something like that or to assert something like that. Even today, listen, hear me on this. Even today, that terminology, atheism, atheist, is only popular. Those ideas are only popular among elitists, among Westerners, among people who are mostly white, mostly rich, and mostly male. The rest of the world knows that there is a creator and you're nuts if you don't think there is one or a God in this world. Paul says here that, you know, atheism, that, that I, he wouldn't use that word, but it's ridiculous. Why? Look at verse 20. Why is it ridiculous? For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, Gentiles, we are without excuse. But Pastor Tony, we didn't know we weren't supposed to commit adultery. Pastor Tony, we, you know, my ancestors are Druid Celts from Ireland. They didn't know. They, you know, they worshiped spirits and idols. Paul says, actually, they did know. They did know. It's obvious. There, not only is there this law of creation, the natural world that's around us that points to God, 
Paul also says elsewhere that there is a law that's written on man's hearts. We know, even, even people who have never, never cracked open a Bible, never darkened the doors of a Bible-believing church, they know, they know that they know that there's a God and we are accountable to him. This is what theologians refer to as general revelation, by the way. You, you might write that down and look that up. There's an article you can read in your sermon notes uh, to learn more about general revelation. Let me just explain it real quickly. There's, there's special revelation, which would be scripture, God speaking directly to us, or dreams in the Old Testament, God speaking directly to Moses, God speaking directly to Abraham. That's what's called special revelation. There's also something called general revelation. This is not God speaking directly to us, but indirectly to us through the sun and the moon and the stars. I didn't make those. You didn't make those. There's something's revealed there that there is a creator. There's also the grass that grows without our help. There's also planets that orbit around the sun in our solar system, and they don't crash into each other. Who designed that? I didn't design that. I'm not even sure how that works. There's also the circulatory system inside of me. I don't even know how that works. There's also the nervous system. There's also the, the cardiovascular system that nobody cares about until they have a heart attack. There's all these things that are working inside of us. And Paul, say, Paul says, general revelation, general revelation, there is a God. And you need to reckon with him. There's no way to deny him. I didn't make these things go inside of my body. You didn't make those things go inside of your body. Your doctor didn't even make those things go inside of your body. He, she's just trying to figure out what's going wrong when you go see your doctor. And there, all of this to say there must be a higher power. There must be a creator God. There must be a system in place that someone put there and sustains. And if you don't believe that or reckon with that, then you're fooling yourself. There's also, I mean, that's all the physical world and the natural world. There's also the moral world that God has created that points to his existence. We know, we know that stealing is wrong. How do, how do we know that? I mean, even people who don't read the Bible know that. They know that stealing is wrong. They know that murder is wrong. Why? Why aren't those things right? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, why, don't, why aren't there cultures out there that, that just steal and it's the right thing to do to steal? It's the right thing to do to murder. There are cultures that do that, but you have to go through a, a pretty extensive amount of perversion of what you might call just the moral law, the moral law written on human hearts to get to that place. Or you gotta be a psychopath to think that. That murder is okay, the murder is right, the murder is acceptable. Why is that? Why are these things true? even universally true throughout the world, because God has written on our hearts, I exist, I exist. There's a moral order to this universe. Even, even you think about our, our day um, in terms of suppressing the truth. You know, in our day, we're trying so, so hard, so hard to call that which is male, female, and that which is female, male. So hard that it's becoming ridiculous. And yet at the same time, there's something inside of us. I think, in, I think even inside of those people that are pushing the hardest for this, that, you know what, this isn't right. Something's not working with this, with the suppression of the truth. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they knew God. Knowledge of God is all around us. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. This harks back to the Garden of Eden. Who knew God better than Adam and Eve? Who knew him better than, than them? 
you know, walked with God in the cool of the day. And yet, even despite all that perfect, perfect fellowship they had with him, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. They, they rebelled against him. They unleashed this avalanche of consequences on our world because of their sin. I just heard this last week about a book coming out. I think it's already come out. It's by Richard Dawkins. It's a book called Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide, and it's a book that Dawkins has written, interesting, interestingly enough, to, to teenagers. He wrote it for teenagers. And Dawkins, if you don't know, he's a famous atheist in our day, and I think Dawkins knows now that to really influence the next generation, to continue his influence, he's got to start influencing young people. So he's writing to young people. And you know what? I, I, don't, I don't like this book. I don't agree with him, but I, I think he's right in that, influencing young people. I told our elders this last Monday, one of my life goals, one of the things I'm trying to do here at Harvest Decatur, and I know our elders are committed to this too, is I want to raise up here at Harvest Decatur an army of Jesus followers for our world. We've got 70 of them. God, give us more right now. I was thinking that yesterday at the Hootenanny because that army of Jesus followers went on a hayride. And I said a little prayer, Lord, please protect our army of Jesus followers. No wrecks, no problem, you know. And, and it was safe. It was safe, parents. It was safe. Doug Henderson did a great job. But, but that, that's my heart. You know what? That's, Dawkins is not immune to that too. He knows. He wants to influence young people. He's the author of other books called The God Delusion. And the premise of his book, most of his books, is that man is better off without belief in God. Belief in God is harmful to humanity. Has he ever been to a country that doesn't believe in God and seen what happens there? Believing that he believes that belief in God is passe, belief in God is unnecessary for the modern enlightened man. It's as if Dawkins' entire career and life has been an outworking of Romans 1.21. For although they knew God. Dawkins is a scientist, or so I hear. How, how can he look out on this world and not see God? For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Dawkins said once that the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That sounds great. <laughs> what a worldview. That's a, that's, a, that's a real way to stir, stir up people in terms of their morality and doing right to one another. Paul says not so, Richard Dawkins. The Apostle Paul says the universe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is design, if there is purpose, if there is good and evil at war with one another and the sovereign God of the universe, the creator orchestrating all of us, all of it. Paul says, for what we know about God is plain to us. It's clear. It's right in front of you because God has shown it to us. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the universe. It's clear to you, Richard Dawkins, says Paul. It's clear to you, Harvest Decatur. And yet we, in our wisdom, in our humanity, we snub the creator. We suppress the truth. We need a savior. 
We need the gospel. We need Jesus Christ to save us from ourselves. It gets worse. There's more. Not only do we suppress the truth, not only do we do we snub the creator, we also substitute the glory of God. Paul says in verse 22, <laughs> claiming to be wise, they, that's these unrighteous, ungodly men, that's the Gentiles, that's the truth suppressors, the God rejectors, the Gentiles who are without an excuse before the sovereign creator of the universe, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So not only are we true suppressors, not only are we God rejectors, we are glory exchangers, says Paul. We exchange the glory of God for the glory of idols and images, for, for cheap God substitutes. Fyodor Dostoevsky said this once. He said, the one essential condition of human existence is that man should always be able to bow down before something infinitely great. We long for this. We long to bow down to worship. The, the, the faculty of worship is in us. And if we don't find the infinitely great, if we don't surrender to the infinitely great, we find something less than infinitely great and we bow down to that, namely idols. The Jewish mystic Simone Weil, she said it this way. She said, one has the choice between God and idolatry. There is no other possibility for the faculty of worship is in us. It is in us. We have this need to worship, worship something. If it's not God, it's going to be idolatry. And it's either directed somewhere in this world or into another. She said one has to choose between God and idolatry. What is idolatry? What is an idol? You guys have heard me rant about this before. Let's talk about idolatry. What is idolatry? It's a false god, right? An idol. It's a counterfeit god, a counterfeit to the god of the universe. The first commandment tells us, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second commandment is like it. Thou shalt not make for yourself graven images. Actually, Exodus 24 is more comprehensive than that. You can read this on the screen. Moses here, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth creeping things that you hear the, the echo what Paul is echoing there in Romans you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God and of course idolatry I mean you guys know this y'all are savvy Bible readers idolatry was this massive problem in the ancient world Everybody was bound down before idols. The, the, the Canaanites were constantly worshiping idols. The Old Testament Israelites were always being seduced by the other peoples to worship their idols, Baal and Asherah and all these others. This, this constant problem, this desire in the human heart to bow down to some idol besides God, to substitute God with something else. In the New Testament, Paul addresses idolatry head on. In the pagan city, of, of, of Rome, of Ephesus. Remember in Ephesus when he was there? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The people were going around screaming that stupid chant for two hours. 
Our service here is like an hour and a half. Can you imagine that? Two hours screaming that same stupid statement. Lifting up idols. It wasn't just there, you know, Paul, even before he went to Ephesus, he was in Athens and, you know, Acts 17 says that his, his, his heart was grieved because the city was full of idols. And here's this city, Athens, this great place of intellectual learning, and they're all bowing down before these idols. And Paul might as well have been talking about Athens when he writes in Romans 1, 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, claiming to be philosophers, claiming to be schooled, claiming to be wise, it became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We see this idolatry in the Bible and our hearts are grieved. We see this kind of primitive and base idolatry in our day and our hearts are grieved. You know, I was in, I was in India and I mean, there's, there's idolatry everywhere. So much so that the Christians I was interacting with, they, they can't even participate in national festivals in India, any national festival going on because according to them, all of it is just demonic idol worship. That's all they do. They, they can't participate. In our, I'm grieved by that. They're grieved by that. In our country, we're grieved by the, the iconography that goes on in Catholic churches, in Orthodox churches. We're grieved that humans still struggle so mightily with the first and the second commandments of Scripture. But, 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 be careful now, Harvest Decatur. Because you might say, Pastor Tony, we're good. We don't have problems with idols. We don't carve stuff in our basements and bow down and worship it. In our Western Christianized world, we don't have trouble with idols. And of course, you guys know how I respond to that. Don't be naive. Don't be naive. We got idols. We got things in our lives that take the place of God. We put things in God's place. And we do that all the time, even in North America. Frederick Nietzsche, who's farthest thing from a Christian, he said, he said, there are more idols in the world than there are realities. John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. We're constantly making idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb an expert in inventing idols. Like I said, we might not go down our basement and carve it out of wood and bow down to it, but we got things that we put in place of God. We've got idolatry in our heart. John Wesley said this. He said, whatever takes your heart from God or shares your heart with God is an idol. You got anything like that in your life? Something today maybe that you need to confess before the sovereign Lord? There's something I value more than you, God. There's something that I put in your throne every week. I think the best treatment on this subject is Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods. Small group leaders, if you're looking for a good study for your small group, here's one. Read this book. Because here's how, I mean, Keller deconstructs this whole idea that we don't have idols in our day, and he defines an idol this way. He says, it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give, what, give you only what God can give is an idol. Keller says an idol is anything in your life that is so central to your life that you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. God, you can have anything in my life, but you can't have this thing. You can't touch this thing. If you touch this thing, God, me and you are done. 
What is that? What is that thing? That is your idol. That is your functional God that you put in place of God. And Keller, he points out that, you know, idols, they're not always bad things. Usually they're good things that we turn into ultimate things. Things like family, work, money, sex, hobbies, creativity, self-expression. These are created things that God gave us and they're good things and we can use them, but if we make them the ultimate thing, if they take our heart, if they take the place of God, we're dealing with idolatry. We are just as base and deprived as those Old Testament Canaanites that are bowing before brick and wood and stone. And we need a savior. William Cooper writes this. Here's his prayer. He says, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. We need Jesus, don't we now? Are you convinced yet? If you're not convinced, let's look at number four. Here's the last thing we do. We suppress the truth. We snub the creator. We substitute the glory of God for false gods. And then we also succumb to immorality. Paul says this in verse 24. Let's look at our Bibles together. Paul says, therefore, and that's an important transitional word there. It's the Greek word dio, and it's what's called in Greek an inferential conjunction. It means for this reason, it means because of this, because, here's what Paul's saying, because we are God rejectors, because we are truth suppressors, because we are glory exchangers, God gives up. He gives us up. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He gives us what we want. You want your lusts, says God? You want it? You can have it. You want your idols? Take it. Take it. Oscar Wilde, again, farthest thing from a Christian, said once, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. What, what did he mean by that? I think he means Romans 1. I think he means God gives us up to our worst vices, to our worst evils. Oscar Wilde knew a thing or two about this. He knew that the worst thing for him was to get what his heart wanted most. It was the worst possible thing for him. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their body among themselves. Some examples, you know, think about Think about Lot and his daughters in Genesis 19. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 14. Think about the sexual sin of the Canaanites in the Old Testament. Think about the sexual sin of the Corinthians and the Romans in the New Testament. Think about sexual sin in America in 2019. Think about sex outside of marriage in this country. Think about the LGBT agenda in this country. Think about the pornography in this country that we export to the rest of the world. Think about sex trafficking. 
and the sex slave industry that we have been silently complicit in in this country. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Here it is. Here's where idolatry meets immorality. Look at verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the created thing, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need a bloodied and suffering Savior dying on the cross for our sins? Why do we need Jesus Christ? Here's why. Here's why. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all our ungodliness and our wickedness. And God's wrath will either be unleashed on you or it will be unleashed on the Son of God as payment for your sin. And God will, God the Son will take the wrath and you in exchange by faith get his righteousness. Is, is that true? Can that be true? That is the greatest thing in human history. That we actually receive what Jesus deserves and Jesus got what we deserved and paid for that, paid for the wrath of God by his death on the cross so we might get his righteousness. It's the greatest deal in human history that God would offer us that. So what's it going to be, Harvest Decatur? Wrath or righteousness? Which way do you want to go? Those are your options. And by the way, you know, some of y'all might read this. It gets even worse in Romans 1. You're like, oh, I'm not that bad, Pastor Tony. You know, we're not really that bad. Decatur, that's a good place. We've got lots of good people here. And I, I think people in this world like to, like to create, like, you know, there's people like Hitler and there's people like Jesus. And I'm more like Jesus than I am like Hitler, so I'm good. Here's the truth of the matter. You are infinitely more like Hitler than you are like Jesus. If you don't know that, if you don't believe that, you don't know the gospel. All you lack, all all of us lack is just opportunity and power. And they, we, if you know the darkness of your heart, you know that you're way more like Hitler than you are like Jesus. And you need Jesus' righteousness because you can't produce it on your own. It sounds like I'm preaching to the choir. You guys know this. Jesus said it this way. You get it. The only way your Hitler heart is going to be saved is turning to Jesus. And Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus said that. This is not just Pauline doctrine. Jesus said that. So, I'll close with this and then we can take communion together and celebrate the righteousness that's made possible to us through faith. This is a good story to close with, seeing that it's October and there's a lot of harvesting going on right now. The story is told about a farmer who was an unbeliever, completely antagonistic to the gospel. Not like our farmers here at Harvest Decatur. He didn't want God. 
He didn't need God, or so he thought. And on Sundays, he used to pull out his tractor and just run up and down beside the church adjacent to his property to distract them on Sunday mornings. He got a big kick out of that. He loved being a distraction to the worship service. And despite his God defiance, despite all of this, his, his corn produced. It sprouted. It was knee-high by the 4th of July. In fact, it was past knee-high by the 4th of July. And in the fall, when he, when he was done, he brought in this tremendous harvest. And so he decided to sit down and write a letter to the pastor of that little country church and gloat a little bit. And he told the pastor that obviously God didn't exist because the farmer had consciously gone against what Christianity teaches. And yet, look how he was blessed with this incredible harvest. It was like, I mean, his, his ideas were like pagan prosperity theology. That's what he was espousing. I defied God, and look, I have this great harvest. Everything's great. You know, it was Romans 1, 21, all over the place. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, long letter, bragging to this pastor, this farmer. The pastor, in response, gives this guy one line. He writes one line back to him. And he said this. He said, God doesn't settle his accounts in October. (laughs) Paul says the wrath of God is revealed in verse 18. And I want you to know that's a present tense verb. It's, theologians call this already not yet. There's a foretaste of God's wrath. And there might be some, even in this day, who escape the wrath of God, the implications of the wrath of God. None of us really escape it in this world in the here and now. But let's say in part you escape it. You won't escape the wrath of God in the judgment, in the climactic day of the Lord. God will rain down his judgment on those who reject him. And even if you escape for a while in the here and now, you won't escape in the end of days, not without Jesus. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, God's wrath, God's righteousness. Ryan said it earlier, son of wrath, son of God. What's it going to be? Those are our options. Let's pray together. Let's bow your head with me for a moment. If you are a child of God this morning, If you have believed in Jesus' death and his resurrection and you are saved, then I want to welcome you this morning to take these elements. Take of the bread that signifies Jesus' 
body broken on the cross as payment for your sin, the wrath of God poured out on him. Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that for you. He did that to pay for your sin. I want to invite you to take of the, take of the cup this morning. The cup symbolizes God's, God the Son's blood, Jesus Christ's blood shed on, the, shed on the cross for our sins. If you believe, if you've been saved and spared from God's wrath, then I want to welcome you now to participate, to celebrate with these communion elements. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, if you've never put your faith in the Savior who died for your sins and was raised from the dead, I want to implore you with all my powers of persuasion. Ultimately, this is between you and God, and I'm leaving it to the Lord. Believe. Repent of your sins and believe. Because if you don't have Jesus, if you don't have his righteousness, you will for eternity experience his wrath. And you don't have to. Bear with me for a few more moments, please. We will take communion in just a second, but let me linger here. I don't know everybody's heart. I don't know everybody in this room. I know most of you in terms of your faith, but if you're here today and you don't know Christ, or if you're unsure, then right now, in the quietness of your heart, let's communicate to the Lord. I believe. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he was raised from the dead. Paul says clearly that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that he raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. You can be saved. Lord, we come before you in this time to remember. Remember what you did for us. How you absorbed into yourself the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to experience it. God, there's a mixture of sadness and joy as we take these elements. Sadness that you had to suffer for us. 
but joy because you purchased our salvation. So God, as we remember, remind us, remind us what you did for us. And may we take these elements as an act of worship. We pray in your name, amen.